Welcome to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide for April, May and June 2014, titled Christ and His Law. It's brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Lesson 9 for May 24-30, Christ, the Law and the Gospel. Sabbath afternoon, May 24. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that because of Jesus coming and living and dying and rising again, that each of us could have eternal life. As we study about that and its relationship to the law this week, we pray that your Spirit will guide us, that our minds may be clear and our hearts opened. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is John chapter 1 and verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Let's read that again, John one seventeen. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. A century before Christ, Roman poet Lucretius wrote a famous poem on the nature of things that was lost in history until the Middle Ages. Though often accused of being an atheist, Lucretius didn't deny in his poem the existence of the gods. He just argued that, by virtue of being gods, they would have absolutely no interest in anything human. In contrast, the Bible argues that there is only one God, and that he is fervently interested in what happens here, and two manifestations of that passionate interest in humanity are found in his law— which is to guide how we live, and in His grace, His means of saving us, even though we have violated that law. Though often seen as contrary to each other, law and grace are inseparably linked. Their methods of operation may be different, but together they reveal that righteousness must triumph over sin. The manifestations of God's law and His grace provide powerful evidence of His love for humanity and His desire to save us into His eternal kingdom. Sunday, May 25, Sin and the Law Question. Read Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 12. What is Paul saying here about the relationship between sin and law? Why would he even ask such a question as, Is the law sin? Well, let's start in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. 
Paul so closely relates the law and sin that he asks the rhetorical question, Is the law sin? The answer, of course, is that it's not. On the contrary, at the end of the section he says, Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. The therefore shows the conclusion of his argument, that, far from being sin, the law is indeed holy and good. What Paul says here is analogous to the relationship between criminal law and crime. Something is criminal only if the law depicts it as such. You might go to jail in one country for doing something that in another country is legal. The reason one country has a law forbidding that action, the other doesn't. It is the same action, but with two different consequences. What makes the difference? The law. A crucial point to remember, too, is that just because something is a law doesn't make it good. In early America, a law required people to return escaped slaves to their masters. It was the law, yet it was hardly a just one. In the case of God's law, however, we know that it reflects his loving character. Thus Paul's words that the law is holy and good. What else could it be, considering who created it? Question. What significance is there in the commandment that Paul uses in Romans 7.7 to prove his point about the law? Why does he use that one instead of another, such as, Thou shalt not steal? Let's look at verse 7 again. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. Perhaps Paul uses that specific commandment instead of some of the others because it's not so obvious that it's wrong. Many people in and of themselves might not believe that coveting is wrong. Murder? Stealing? Yes. One certainly doesn't even need the Ten Commandments to know that. But coveting? So it is a perfect example to make his point that it's the law that shows us what sin is. Otherwise, he might not have known that coveting was wrong. Monday, May 26, The Law and Israel The giving of the law to Israel was a special act. Just before he gave the law to Moses, God reminded his people that they are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus 19, verse 6 Among all nations on the face of the earth, it was to Israel that God specifically revealed his law, as it tells us in Romans 9, 4. The law was not intended to be a burden to the people, but to be a tool through which the chosen nation would reveal to the masses the moral code that is the foundation of God's government. Israel was to be a partner with God in the mission of universal evangelism, and God's law was to be the identifying mark for God's spokespersons. Question. According to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 to 20, what is the relationship between the law 
and the promises given to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Also, even more crucial, how do these principles apply to us today as well, under the New Covenant? And we'll look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27 for that. But first of all, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 to 20. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways and to keep His commandments, His statutes and His judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear, and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess." I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. And we'll also look now at Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. God chose Israel to be his representatives. Israel would be the people through whom the nations of the earth received the blessings promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. However, the blessings were by no means automatic. As a chosen nation, Israel was expected to walk in harmony with the Lord's will. Moses made it clear that life and prosperity would come to the people only if they observed God's commandments, decrees and ordinances, as it said in verses 15 and 16 of Deuteronomy 30. Given the numerous stories of rebellion that mar Israel's history, Israel as a nation failed to live up to the covenant conditions. Yet we must not forget that, as it says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No nation on earth has fulfilled the will of God. Even in recent history, nations that profess to be Christian have misrepresented the cause of God with warmongering, prejudice and oppression. So to finish today, in your own experience, how are obedience and faith related? That is, when you obey, what happens to your faith in contrast to when you disobey? How does obedience strengthen faith?
Tuesday, May 27, The Law and the Nations Question. Read Acts chapter 10, verse 34 and 35, chapter 17, verses 26 and 27, Romans 1.20 and Romans 2.14. What is the central teaching of these texts? Well, first of all, Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. And Acts 17, verses 26 and 27. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And Romans 1.20 For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And Romans 2.14 For when Gentiles, who do not have the law by nature, do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Despite Israel's mistakes, God did not leave the people in other nations without a witness. Those who were not privileged to receive God's written revelation received divine messages through the pages of natural revelation as expressed in Romans 1.20. God's book of nature contains enough information to direct a person to him. God has also instilled a measure of spiritual desire in every human being. According to Paul, those who sense God's indwelling spirit will engage in a quest to find him, as it said in Acts 17.27. So many people sense an emptiness in their lives that nothing this world offers. Fame, power, money, sex can ultimately fulfill. At its heart, this was the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. This emptiness, this dissatisfaction, often leads people in a quest for something beyond, for something that transcends everyday existence. They are drawn to reveal truth in a desire to quell the longings and emptiness of their souls. Whether God's will is revealed through written documents or nature, the person who receives it has the responsibility to live it. Truth is truth, regardless of the vehicle that delivers it, and those who suppress the truth will experience the wrath of God, as it tells us in Romans 1.18. Consequently, although many people may not have received the Bible or the Ten Commandments, God still holds them accountable for the portions of truth that they have gleaned. Ultimately, Everyone will be judged, and the standard of judgment will be law, either the law God expressly revealed through his prophet Moses, or for those who are ignorant of the written law, the law of conscience, which has been developed by listening to God's voice in nature. So to finish today, what great disappointments have you faced that have helped you see just how untrustworthy and unsatisfactory the things of this world really can be? How can you learn from these disappointments about what truly matters?
Wednesday, May 28, Grace and Truth John condensed the history of salvation into one verse in John 1.17. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. As a result of Adam's sin, all humanity has been affected by the curse of death. The curse is intensified by the fact that no one born to human parents, except Jesus, has been free from sinful inclinations. Therefore, God selected a people to whom he revealed his law, intending that those elected would be his light to the other nations. God did not give the law to Israel as a means to salvation, but as a constant reminder of their need for righteousness. Question what do Philippians 2 verse 8, John 15:10, and Matthew 26:39 tell us about the kind of life that Jesus lived? First of all, Philippians 2 verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. John chapter 15 verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And Matthew 26, verse 39. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. When he disobeyed the express command of God, the first Adam plunged the entire world into disarray and bondage. On the other hand, through his obedient life, the second Adam, Jesus, came to deliver the world from the bondage that the first Adam had brought. When Jesus walked this earth, he voluntarily subjected his own will to the will of his Father and chose not to sin. Unlike the first Adam, who brought condemnation and falsehood into the world, Jesus brought in grace and truth. Grace and truth did not supplant the law. Jesus showed instead why the law alone was not enough to procure salvation. The truth that he brought was a more complete understanding of grace. Question. According to Romans 6.23 and Ephesians 2.8, what is the nature of the grace that originates in Jesus? How did Jesus supply grace for humans? Well, Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Ephesians 2 verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The Greek word translated as grace, charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, can also mean gift, and is related to the term for joy, chara, C-H-A-R-A. The gift that Jesus gives to humanity is eternal life. Further, grace manifests itself as the indwelling presence of Christ that enables the individual to participate in the righteousness that the law promotes. Paul states that in condemning sin in the flesh, Jesus has made it possible that, as it says in Romans 8.4, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Grace not only frees us from the condemnation of the law, but it enables us to keep the law in the way that we are called to do.
Thursday, May 29, The Law and the Gospel No matter how good our lives are, none can escape the constant reminders of sin. Inevitably, happiness is interrupted by sickness, death, disaster. On the personal level, feelings of spiritual security are often challenged by memories of past sins, and even worse, by the urge to sin again. Question. In what ways do Romans 6.23, 7.24 and Ephesians 2.1 describe the impact of sin? Well, first of all, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 7.24. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And Ephesians 2.1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. A person living in sin, in unrighteousness, is merely a walking corpse, just waiting for the day when the last breath exits his body. When Paul assesses the human condition, he cries out in desperation in Romans 7.24, Who will deliver me from this body of death? This is a cry for liberation from unrighteousness, Paul quickly realises that deliverance comes through Jesus in the following verse. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. This is the gospel. The good news is that we who have been trapped in bodies of unrighteousness can be covered with the righteousness of Christ. The gospel is the guarantee that we can escape the condemnation of the law because we now possess the righteousness that the law promotes. As it says in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. When Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome, the story of Jesus' death was still being circulated throughout the empire. Those who had heard were fully aware that the way he died was scandalous. People whose loved ones had been executed on a cross were often left to a life of shame. However, Paul and countless other Christians understood that Christ's shameful death was the most powerful event in human history. That is why Paul declares in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, and that's the author's translation. And the heart of that gospel is the great promise that in the end death will not have the final say and that those saved by Jesus will live forever in a new earth. So to finish today, many people believe that life is meaningless because it always ends in death. So nothing we do will matter in the long run. It's hard to argue with that logic, isn't it? If everything we have ever done and every person we have ever influenced will all forever be lost and forgotten, what can life mean? Friday, May 30. From the book Faith and Works by Ellen White, page 19, we read, 
let the subject be made distinct and plain that it is not possible to effect anything in our outstanding before God or in the gift of God to us through creature merit. Should faith and works purchase the gift of salvation for anyone, then the Creator is under obligation to the creature. Here is an opportunity for falsehood to be accepted as truth. If any man can merit salvation by anything he may do, then he is in the same position as the Catholic to do penance for his sins. Salvation, then, is partly of debt that can be earned as wages. If man cannot, by any of his good works, merit salvation, then it must be wholly of grace, received by man as a sinner because he receives and believes in Jesus. It is wholly a free gift. Justification by faith is placed beyond controversy, and all this controversy is ended as soon as the matter is settled that the merits of fallen man in his good works can never procure eternal life for him. And that brings us to our four discussion questions for this week. 1. Dwell on the Ellen White statement in Friday's study. Think through the wonderful and hopeful truths found in these words, for even the worst of sinners. How can we learn to claim these promises for ourselves and live as if we really believe them? 2. Although God gave his law to Israel through Moses, the Bible suggests that he uses other methods to reveal his will to people who may not have access to his written revelation. Romans one twenty two fourteen and Acts 17 verses 26 and 27 we read yesterday. If God does indeed speak to all people, what is the purpose of missionaries and evangelists? 3. John one seventeen states that grace and truth originated with Jesus Christ. Using that text, many people place the law in opposition to grace and truth. Why is this a false dichotomy? In what ways do the law and grace and truth all work together to reveal to us the character of God as seen in the plan of salvation? And for Russian writer Fyodor Dostoevsky created a character who wanted to study why more people didn't kill themselves. As an atheist, he couldn't understand why people would want to live meaningless lives that were often so full of pain. Discuss the logic of this thinking. Inside Story. Our mission story this week is titled The Stolen Watermelon. Mpo and Tendai live in Zambia. One day they were hot and thirsty after playing. They sat down in the shade to rest. Then Mpo jumped up. There's a big watermelon growing in a field nearby. Let's go get it. The two boys set off toward the field. Mpo ran ahead and grabbed the watermelon from the vine and raced toward the bushes. Tendai followed his friend. He wanted to ask permission to eat the watermelon before taking it, but when he reached his friend, Mpo had already broken the watermelon open. The sight of the juicy melon made Tendai's mouth water. He scooped up a piece of melon and ate it. Soon the boys had enough 
watermelon. They'd eaten the entire watermelon. They sat back full and satisfied. It was getting late, and Tendai hurried home. When he arrived home, his mother said, "'Dinner is almost ready.' "'I'm not hungry,' Tendai said. "'I ate with Mpo.' Mother frowned. "'Okay,' she said. "'Then do your chores and come inside for worship.' After worship, Tendai lay down on his straw mat and fell asleep. He dreamed that his whole family went to heaven, but he couldn't enter because he had stolen the watermelon. He awoke with a start, crying. The next night, and the next, he had the same dream. He awoke the third morning, knowing that he must tell his mother about the stolen watermelon. "'We must tell the farmer whose watermelon you stole,' his mother said. They walked to the farmer's house. Tendai confessed that he and his friend had stolen the watermelon. "'It was wrong,' he said. "'I'm sorry.' The farmer nodded. "'It was wrong to take the watermelon. Now I must buy another one. Do you have the money to pay for a watermelon?' Tendai shook his head. "'Then you will work to pay for the watermelon,' the farmer said. His mother nodded at Tendai. "'I need a new rubbish pit. I'll show you where to dig it.' Tendai took the man's shovel and followed him to a field. He began digging. It was hard work, and the sun was hot on his back. But he kept digging until the rubbish pit was done. Then he gathered the rubbish from the land around the pit. Now, when Tendai is tempted to do something wrong, he remembers the hot sun beating on his back as he dug the rubbish pit. He remembers his dreams, too, and he turns away from temptation, for he doesn't want to miss out on heaven. Your reader this week has been Dr. Percy Harold. The lessons have been brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember that God is always faithful.